One of the greatest joys in life must surely be finding a bargain. That deep sense of satisfaction you get when you go to a yard sale and find something you really need for 50 cents. It's the joy of Morris Park, a British antiques dealer, when he found on, on eBay for £3.20, one of those old metal movie reel containers, and then finding inside a never released seven minute film featuring Charlie Chaplin made in 1916. It's now been valued at a million pounds. It's the joy of Kent Deavy when he paid $25 for a used Blackberry and later discovered the numbers and email addresses of 50 A-list celebrities, including Natalie Portman and Kevin Spacey. And it's the joy of Lutheran pastor Mike Ernst of Hales Corners, Wisconsin, when he stumbled across a rusty Chevy Corvette from the early 1960s. When he took it to his barn and began the slow work of restoration, it soon became clear that this was no ordinary Corvette. This old clunker turned out to be the 1962 Gulf Oil Corvette, a car that won first place 12 times at Daytona and elsewhere. He paid $3,000 for it and sold it at auction for 1.4 million. Sometimes the baby is in the bathwater. You don't expect it, you don't go looking for it, you don't even know what to make of it when you find it, but sometimes the baby is in the bathwater. And here she comes to take a bath, oblivious to the fact that she is about to stumble upon a find so precious and remarkable that it will change the world for all time. She is nameless. She's powerful, she's courageous, she's compassionate, but we don't know her name. She's Pharaoh's daughter, and she plays a profound role in the salvation of the world. We're at part 12 of our summer sermon series, From Eden to Egypt, and we are in our destination. We got there two weeks ago, courtesy of Joseph, minus his dream coat, and his, and, and his riches uh, to, sorry, from his riches to rags back to riches journey from pit to prison to palace. He ended last week's story as a hero, the second mightiest man in the Egyptian empire and supervisor of the food program at a time of global famine. Well, it's been a long week. In fact, 400 years has passed in the last seven days. Joseph is dead, obviously, and so tragically is his memory. The Hebrew people, the descendants of Joseph and his 11 brothers, now form a large population in Egypt, so much so that the new Pharaoh fears them, because he doesn't know history, he is ignorant of the bonds that his ancestors formed with the ancestors of the Hebrews. 
Together, they had joined minds and hearts and faced down a common enemy, famine. Together, they had built a prosperous region, and together, they lived, worked, gave birth, matured, and died in peace. When people lose their common story, bad things happen. If only this new pharaoh had known how once these two peoples, Egyptians and Hebrews, had lived peacefully and productively together, perhaps his hand would have been kept from tyranny. People who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat its failures. Pharaoh surveys the multitude of Hebrews and he fears their power. And when the powerful fear losing their control, then look out. Tyranny may follow. There's no hint that the Hebrews threatened Pharaoh's power. All they had done was obey God's instruction to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember that? Week one in our series, June the 7th it was, be fruitful and multiply. And Joseph and his family did. But now the king of Egypt worries. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And Pharaoh is kept awake by anxious thoughts. What if they rise up? They might be strong enough to take us. What if they side with an enemy? It might be the end for us. And the first of many holocausts is unleashed against the Hebrew people. We're familiar with the last one, 80 years ago, but this was the first, three and a half thousand years ago. So Pharaoh makes them slaves, indentured workers on the great public building programs that gave us some wondrous ancient monuments. But this doesn't stop the Hebrews from growing even greater in number. So by and by, as his fears grow, so does the king's cruelty. Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the male Hebrew babies as soon as they are born. The midwives, however, fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, and they ignore his orders. Uh, they make excuses. Forgive us, your majesty, but these Hebrew women in labor are strong, and before we can get to them, they have already given birth so that we aren't able to snatch the boys and kill them. And along with his frustration grow Pharaoh's fears. Now he commands the citizens of Egypt to seek out Hebrew boys. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and he is surely right. But if there is another root of evil, then it must be fear. It is fear that drove this tyrant, fear that stokes suspicion, violence, prejudice, and all kinds of sins that drive us from one another. It's fear that makes people steal hoard and ignore others in need. It's fear of destruction that leads to arms races and fear of rejection that causes us to lie and manipulate. 
the Egyptian people had been granted by God a wondrous gift, the river Nile. It transformed the desert into a place of prosperity and fertility, and without this gift, Egypt could not exist. But now the gift is turned to a means of murder. The Hebrew boys are thrown into it, where the Nile crocodiles do the rest. And the scene is set for the next moment in God's eternal plan of salvation. By now we've learned that the writers of these great stories in Genesis and Exodus have a keen nose for irony. And here's one more in today's events. Pharaoh targeted male children, but it was two Hebrew women, the midwives, Shipra and Puah, who courageously defied him and saved many children. It's a Hebrew woman, the mother of Moses, who foils his plans with a simple woven basket. It is an Egyptian princess who finds and rescues Moses, and a Hebrew girl, Moses' sister, who persuades her to find him a wet nurse, who is actually his real mother. A man in this story seems to have all the power and yet it is the women God uses to bring about salvation. Here's a picture of faith for you, for you that we are understanding from these wonderful stories. Faith is the guy on a submarine who listens to the sonar. He has earphones on and is listening to the slightest sound to indicate the presence of another submarine. Often, the course of action the captain orders is because of what that sailor picks up. Much of the time, the captain has to make a decision based on the faintest whispers the man with the earphones believe he has heard among all the other sounds of the seas. Apparently, one of the official requirements to be a sonar technician in the Navy, surprisingly, is normal hearing. I would have thought they'd look for submariners with super sensitive hearing, but normal hearing is all that's asked for. Faith, too, seeks out the quiet sounds of God in the world filled with deafening noise. But as on a submarine, it does not take extraordinary spiritual ears to detect God's work. All we need are ears and the will to listen carefully. God often works in quiet mode. That is the feature of computers as they update your system of software when you're asleep or when you're busy doing something else. To go into quiet mode, a computer will suspend other certain activities and use its memory in a way that will benefit you. Functions that need a lot of memory are halted <clears throat> so that in a few minutes you will enjoy higher performance but you can still carry out low level activities while the program is in quiet mode. 
by the way, I know nothing about computers and I hope it didn't show. It feels like God is in quiet mode, unobtrusively at work. But believe it and wait. One day you may be shocked at the upgrade in your performance. One of the finest preachers in the Episcopal Church is Barbara Brown Taylor. These are her words. If there is a switch to flip, I have never found it. As with Jacob, most of my visions of the divine have happened while I was busy doing something else. I did nothing to make them happen. They happen to me the same way a thunderstorm happens, or a bad cold, or a sudden awareness that I am desperately in love. My only part is to decide how I will respond, since there is plenty I can do to make them go away. Namely, one, I can figure that I had too much caffeine again. Two, I can remind myself that visions are not true in the same way that taxes and the evening news are true. Our three, I can return my attention to everything I need to get done today. These are the only a few of the things I can do to talk myself out of living in the house of God. Or I can set a little altar in the world of my heart. Human beings may separate things into as many piles as we wish, separating spirit from flesh, sacred from secular, church from world. But we should not be surprised when God does not recognize the distinctions we make between the two. Earth is so thick with the possibility of the divine that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. And so this week, may you spot the baby in the bathwater. May you hear with the focus of a sonar detector, and then may you live in the light of God's revelation to you. Amen.